I'm super glad to be able to preach this morning. Um, pray that Pastor Ryan's had a little bit of a respite this week. Um, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper this morning. And so with that in mind, my mind went to making sure that we understand what it is when we observe these elements together. Uh, for the title of the message this morning, I titled it, The Lord's Supper, The Gospel on Display. So as we partake of these elements together, the bread and the juice, the thing that we have to make sure is that we are displaying the gospel, the biblical gospel, even as we partake of these things together. So this is the, one of the two ordinances that the Lord uh, Jesus Christ gave to his church, the other one being baptism. But oftentimes we approach these elements with an air of familiarity because we've encountered these a lot before, maybe even with this perspective on traditionalism. This is something that we typically do, right? Here at Fellowship Wildwood, it's something we do quarterly. Maybe you've been in churches where it's done monthly or even every week that you come together. And we're, we're often, if we have that mentality, we often err in one of two extremes. The first one is to place more significance upon these elements than what the Bible says. Okay, to, to view them sort of as this special impartation of grace, right, that adds to our salvation in some way. An example of this would be uh, in the Catholic Church, the, the term transubstantiation. Now, you just say that a couple of times, right? But what that means is that these elements literally change in substance. They become the actual body and the actual blood of Christ that are partaken. We don't affirm that, okay? The other, though, extreme would be to view this as just a ritual, just a tradition that we do that has no bearing or calling upon our lives as those who are Christ followers. Once again, both of these errors, whether it be viewing it as a special form of grace to secure salvation or having little impact upon our life. Both of these are errors, right? It is the finished work of Jesus Christ alone that we can base our salvation upon. But yet it also calls us uh, to do something as we partake of these elements together. In fact, we treat other symbols, other signs similarly, right? We, we, we realize that signs are given to promote unity among us, but also to cause us to remember. For example, a flag, right? A flag. Here you have the flag of a nation. Anybody know what nation that is? I know somebody knows the flag of this nation. This is the flag of the nation of Ireland, right? And as you look on that flag, maybe it stirred within you some emotion because I know our church, some of us have been on a mission trip to Ireland, right? Maybe you're looking at the colors, maybe you're looking at the stripes, you're just admiring the flag. But yet there is one among us that has special affinity for this flag, Tim Montgomery, right? And he's sitting back there, right? As he views this flag, I'm imagining that unlike anybody else, maybe in the room, he has a particular affinity for this flag because he is a citizen of this country. This is his homeland. This is where he was born, right? So he feels the representation of that flag even as he looks on it. Here's another symbol, wedding rings, 
Even if you're not married, you've been to a wedding ceremony, right? You see the exchanging of rings and the, the taking of vows in the midst of this covenant, right? Of which this is a symbol of that. Does the symbol communicate anything? What if I were to take my ring off and I just threw it down and down on the floor? What would you be thinking? Hopefully you'd be thinking, wow, we've got to get Pastor Brad and Miss Jessica some counseling. Because, right, that's the expectation. Because, yes, it is just a ring, but it represents something, right? It has significance that is found not in the, the metal, not in the ring itself, not in the, uh, the flag itself, but rather what it represents. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic element of the new covenant, that God has made through the shedding of his own son's blood on the cross. And we remember that as we come together to observe the Lord's Supper together. You see, it is a symbol that points to something much greater. Our statement of faith puts it this way. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. So for the sermon today, the sort of big idea that I want you to walk away with is this. Our observance of the Lord's Supper that we'll be doing today, here in a little while, should properly display the gospel. I'm going to pre- repeat that again. Our observance of the Lord's Supper should properly display the gospel. Now, you should be noticing something. Should properly. We're going to find that the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth that you can partake of the bread and of the juice. And you can do it in such a way that really you're not having the Lord's Supper. You can miss the substance of it while still holding the ritual, still holding the tradition of it. So we are to properly display it. So let's look at what Paul has to say about how to conduct ourselves in the observance of this. The first point, the gospel is properly displayed through the Lord's Supper as we remember the past. As we remember the past. And this is probably an aspect that you're most aware of. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning in verse 23. Paul writing to the Corinthians says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
couple of aspects as we think about remembering the past. What does this involve? Well, the first thing I want you to see here in verse 23 is Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I'm also passing off to you. We stand in this interesting spot of the baton being passed to us from a prior generation and we will pass the baton to someone else. What is that baton? It is this message, this faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, the book of Jude says, and this gospel message that we're proclaiming in the midst of observing the Lord's Supper, right? We're historically connected both to the church of the past, right, and also carrying forward that baton of the gospel to the church that is to come, the next generation, as it were. Look at verse 22, I mean 24. Verse 24, not only is this historically grounded in our understanding of where we fit in this timeline, but Jesus also makes sure that we understand what we are doing while we're observing this supper. It says, and when he, Jesus, had given thanks. This term is where we get the, an, another term that's used for the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And really this, this term later developed to encompass all of the Lord's Supper and all that we'll be doing. But yet its, it's, it's meaning carries this idea of giving thanks, of being grateful to God. Remembering that the Lord's Supper was grounded in the Passover Seder and grounded in Jewish concepts. We need to note that this giving of thanks is something that would have occurred naturally in, in, in this realm, in the Jewish world, because they were ever thanking God for his gracious provision upon their lives over and over again. But it's not just historically connected it's not just giving thanks. I want you to look at verse 24 and 25. Here, Jesus says, you are to do this in remembrance of me. Our concept of remembering often denotes that we've forgotten something. Now, the first service enjoyed this little analogy, maybe a little bit more than what I, I enjoyed it. But I know you look at me, I'm rather young, but I'm growing ever more forgetful as the years pass by. And I'm imagining you feel the same way, right? Whether it's forgetting where my car keys were, where my billfold was. My wife even bought me this little thing that traces it for me. It has a GPS connected to it. I'm being serious, right? Because I can easily lose those things. And so when we think of this remembrance we often go, well, you're remembering something because you forgot it. That's not the Jewish conception. This idea of remembering in the, in the Jewish um, understanding is really to be thinking upon something, but it's to be meditating upon it. It's to be chewing upon it, contemplating it, seeking to understand it deeper and deeper, even as we sang, right? But it's not just thinking about it, it's also considering its significance. What role does it play? What's the importance of it in life? And then acting accordingly to what it is that it's calling you to do. Remembering, once again, that this, 
Lord's Supper was initiated in the, in the midst and the setting of a Passover Seder. We, we see this so clearly in the Seder. Those, those participants in the Passover Seder, they're not just watching and listening. No, they are actively participating, almost even putting themselves into the story. As they're contemplating the, the, the struggles and the slavery that the children of Israel, the nation of Israel had as they were in bondage in Egypt, it's not just cognitively thinking about it. No, they're placing themselves there even as they eat bitter herbs, right? Remembering the tears of that generation that was in bondage in Egypt, right? It's not just that, but also remembering the 10 plagues or the signs that God gave as they remember those and dip their finger in the, in the, um, in the beverage and then place that on the plate. It's, it's also the, the idea of the deliverance that God has brought through the Passover lamb. But brother and sister in Christ, we have something so much more exhilarating and great than even thinking about that time of deliverance from Egypt. You see, our Savior, the Rescuer, the Redeemer, the deliverer stepped into time to pay the penalty for our sin that we who were separated from him living in the domain of darkness would have our sins forgiven, our transgressions covered by the very act of him giving of himself for us. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we proclaim as a church and that we will reflect as we observe the Lord's Supper together. This remembrance of a new covenant that has been given, that has been ratified in his very blood. This, this remembrance of a new covenant that entails forgiveness of sins once for all for those who repent of their sins and believe and turn to Jesus Christ and him alone and what he did on the cross to forgive us of our sin. This is the gospel. And I want you to see this because it's striking in verse 24. Paul says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, note the next part, which is for you. We remember his death, his burial, his glorious resurrection, all of that having to do with the benefit that we receive to the glory of God the Father. But it's not just this historical connection with the early church. It's not just giving thanks or even remembrance. It's also something else. Look at verse 26 again. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Now we lose something here in our, in our English uh, that, that I have been a proponent of maybe a southern translation of the Bible. And the southern translation would go something like this. Y'all proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because this is a plural pronoun in the Greek Y'all, 
As we come together, yes, we're partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper and we're doing that individually, but yet the message of the gospel is not just tied up in us individually holding these elements and partaking of them. No, it is that the gathered body, the corporate body, is proclaiming a message of the gospel when we gather together and observe it together. So we proclaim the splendor, the glories of our Lord in the midst of our observance. We are in a long line from the initiation of the church proclaiming the same gospel even today, this good news of Jesus Christ. But it's not just that we remember the past. As we observe the Lord's Supper, we're also to be anticipating the future. So the gospel is properly displayed as we anticipate the future. And sometimes we're aware of this, sometimes we're not. We're gonna do some biblical theology, sort of connecting some dots to, to see the answer to the question, but it begins here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. Look at what Paul says. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. So Paul puts a time marker of transition as to how we'll be observing this supper, that there'll be a transition when he comes. So what is this transition? What is this future anticipation look like? We get more of this in Luke 22. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 22, beginning in verse 14, this first observance of the Lord's Supper in the setting of the Passover Seder. Listen to what Jesus has to say to his apostles prior to observing this supper. He says, when the hour came, he, being Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Take note of this. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until, once again, until, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and, he gave, and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Note, for I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. Note, until, until the kingdom of God comes. And then something that should be familiar to you because we've just covered Paul saying the same thing. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So we get this until he comes, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We get this until the kingdom of God comes, Luke 22. These things are tied together and they should be stirring within our hearts a desire for the end of the story. We do not live in the end of the story. The end of this grand true story is that God brings redemption to this world that has been marred, affected, by the uh, ravaged by sin itself that's entered into the mainframe and messed 
it all up, but yet God is sovereign even in the midst of that. It's interesting that in the Passover Seder, there would have been four cups in which they would have uh, partaken. And Jesus is partaking with his disciples in the third of these cups. But yet there is one remaining that he says he's not partaking of yet until the fullness of kingdom blessing comes in. So when is this? When can we set our hearts and expectations and hope upon this? Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Just connecting more dots. As we come to Revelation 19, what we find is that this prayer and praise of hallelujah to the Lord is connected to the defeat of the beast and all the enemies of the Lord. Verse 6 of chapter 19, Revelation. Then I heard something like the voice of the vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Note verse 9. Then he said to me, John, the one receiving this revelation, then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He said to me, these words of God are true. I want you to see right, what we partake of as we come together this morning is just a foretaste, just a glimpse, just a glimmer of what the expectation is in the future when our Lord Jesus Christ, right, at this marriage supper of the Lamb assembles all of those who are believing in, trusting in, clinging to him and him alone, repenting of their sins, brings them together for the fulfillment of this promise. So we look back in remembrance of what Jesus Christ's death has done in providing payment for our sin, our reconciliation with God, we also look forward in anticipation of this being fully revealed, the full kingdom blessings being found. But one of the things we often miss is that in order to proclaim this gospel properly and display it properly, we also have to evaluate the present. It's not just about the past. It's not just about the future. It's also about the present. If you're like me, you might have, upon thinking about the past and the future, had a way-to-go-God moment. I think it's so very appropriate, right? To think about God uh, providing salvation for us through his Son and looking forward to the, the fullness of the kingdom promises being revealed. But there's also a present requirement for us that calls for our commitment and our action, in context of 1 Corinthians, what we have to remember is that the Corinthian church was not a model church. Paul is writing the book of Corinthians 
as a rebuke to many of the ways in which they're acting. He uses this terminology that they are to be spiritual, but yet, rather than being spiritual, they're actually following after the ways of the world just like their neighbors, just like those around them. What did it look like? Well, Paul lets us know some of the questions that the Corinthians had about the gospel that they send to him, but then he makes sure that we know also that he's not only addressing their questions, he's also heard from some who have come to him from Corinth about just how bad things are in this church. You see, he writes to them talking about marriage, talking about young women, talking about how food that is offered to idols is to be handled, how spiritual gifts are to be, um, are, are, are to be dealt with, how the collection for the saints in Jerusalem are to be dealt with. All these things Paul addresses that they've asked, but yet he also addresses some things that come from him uh, come to him from uh, the individuals who have come from Corinth to share. And he reports that there are divisions among them. Even incest to be found there in Corinth among them. Lawsuits among them. Sexual immorality among them. Adornment of women for external show around them. Behavior at the Lord's Supper and questioning the resurrection itself. All these things are not found in Corinth, the city. No, Paul is saying it's found within the church of Corinth. So Paul is writing these rebukes. So why, Paul, why would you rebuke the church at Corinth about observing the Lord's Supper so that we could guard ourselves, warn ourselves about improperly observing this supper as well? Well, we find out. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning verse 17. And I want you to ask yourself this question, why this rebuke? Now I'm giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there are factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while the other is drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I, will, I do not praise you in this matter. We see here five times in this passage all the way through the end uh, of, of the passage in verse 34 that Paul uses this verb, when you come together. The expectation is that the supper is being held when the gathered church is together and so, Paul, upon this assumption, I want you to see what he says and rebukes him for that is driving this rebuke. There are divisions among you, schisms, literally, 
among you, to be found among you. Their observance of the Lord's Supper has gotten so bad, so off track, that Paul says that it would be better if they were not observing the Lord's Supper because of the display of the gospel being profaned. They're not even really eating the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 20. Paul says, when you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You might be having the tradition, you might be having the ritual, you might be having the bread and the juice, but yet you have missed the substance that it represents. So what was going on at Corinth? It says here that some were leaving hungry, because they weren't, there wasn't anything for them, and some were leaving drunk. This little cup right here. Imagine that, right? People getting, getting hungry off of not being able to eat. This is not what we're talking about, right? No, so what is it? Well, what we find in the ancient church is that this, this celebration of the Lord's Supper often occurred around a feast, right? It was called the agape or called the love feast in which uh, individuals would bring food from home to be partaken of together and then sort of connected to that they would observe the Lord's Supper together. Now, some of you might be going, well, I always knew potlucks could be trouble. <laughs> but it's not the potluck, it's what's occurring in the midst of it, Right? They're not displaying the evidence of what the biblical gospel is, right? You might be saying, well, yes, they're being rude to one another, not waiting on one another, not showing deference for one another, right? Getting their fill and feeling good about that, but that's seemingly small. Brad, you're saying that this is scandalous for the church and scandalous for the gospel, and it is, but why? They're observing the symbol, but yet missing the substance. It would be like this. I wear my ring, but yet I commit adultery over and over and over again. The symbol has no meaning, has no significance. I can just wear it. They're missing what the gospel is, and they're communicating a different gospel to the, the Corinthians that live around them. The question might be that they were eating before everyone was there, the poor had arrived. It could be that the rich were just neglecting the needs of the poor. Whatever it is, they're acting contrary to what the early church was doing in the book of Acts, where they had all things in common and they were caring for one another. But what is it, what is their action actually evidencing that Paul is calling out here? Paul's not rebuking them because some are hungry. Paul's not rebuking them because some have abundance. He's rebuking them because they're demonstrating disunity among the body. Their actions are a fruit communicating disunity within the very body of Christ and therefore having an effect upon the gospel that they're proclaiming when they come together. It would be like this as an illustration. Have you ever been to a family dinner? Sometimes this could be like uh, the family getting together for a, um, a funeral, right, or a wedding. 
But yet the air is so thick because there's disunity found within the family. They, there's, there's this air of uncomfortability because the parties are hostile towards one another. Their actions indicate that there's not unity to be found there. Brother and sister, we are a family gathered together around this meal, symbolically remembering the new covenant that was shed by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet, if we observe it with disunity, we are scandalizing the church and scandalizing the gospel. In Corinth, they were reinforcing this honor-shame structure in society rather than understanding gospel implications. From the outside, it would have appeared that there was preferential treatment or favoritism in the gospel. Those who had more favoritism in the gospel versus those who did not. Their actions were evidencing this disunity and thus putting a display of the gospel out among their neighbors, out among those who were even there uh, within the body of Christ, that the relationship between God and his people was based on favoritism and the relationship between one another was based on favoritism and therefore their proclamation of the gospel to the world had to be based on Favoritism, favoritism in the eyes of God. But this is not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is that all of us are sinners in need of the same salvation and it's not based on our works or our merit lest any of us be able to boast. I want you to see how important Paul makes this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. After giving them the correct way in which they are supposed to be observing the gospel. Look at what he says. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are sick and ill and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Paul is reminding them that this is no small thing when you observe the Lord's Supper together, and the corrective that Paul gives is that we examine ourselves. Often during this time of self-examination, we turn inward, right? And there's a part of this self-examination that is to be inward, where we should be asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us where we have sinned, where we have uh, 
committed sin against the, the Lord Jesus Christ and we should repent of that sin, believe the gospel, because none of us are sinless even after being justified by God. We still continue to sin, but yet our sin has been dealt with, paid for, right? So we live as though we have been completely forgiven because of that, that position that we have in Christ. But yet we ask the Lord to convict us of sin so that we would repent of that. But it's not just this inward turning. It also has an outward visible representation. You see, the immediate context of this, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing, note, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Clearly, the body is speaking of the effect of Christ's death, what it has upon our lives. But yet, there's also... Uh, something else that Paul, I believe, wants us to see as an outward visible expression of what this body is talking about. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Paul says, So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry, and from speaking as to, uh, I am speaking as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing, literally koinonia, this fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing, literally koinonia, once again, the body of Christ? Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since we all, since all of us share the one bread. Don't you see, here in chapter 10, Paul is speaking of body terminology, body dynamics, that we are many, but yet we are one body. What makes us one body? The one body of Christ, right, that we remember as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Paul will also pick up this body terminology in chapter 12 where he speaks of the body having many members but yet it still being one body of which there is one head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we gather together, yes, we are to look inward, asking the Spirit to reveal to us what sin might be present in our lives that we might repent of it, believe the gospel, but yet we're also be asking the question, is there any way in which I'm sowing division, disunity within the body? Then we are to repent and believe the gospel concerning that as well. Paul makes sure that we understand that this is no small thing, no, no small thing to partake of it in an unworthy manner. He tells us that some are even sick, ill, and some have even died as a result of misappropriating the significance of the elements of the Lord's Supper. We're not to be characterized by the world, both in our individual lives or as a gathered body worshiping Jesus Christ together because such impugns the very name, renown of our Lord. It's no minor thing, no small thing to trivialize the Lord in this way. Think about other examples in the Bible, Nadab and Abihu with their strange fire. God takes them out. 
Think about Uzziah as he reaches out to steady the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Lord takes him. Think about Ananias and Sapphira as they're lying to the Holy Spirit. The Lord takes them. It is not a small thing in this regard. It it reminded me of something that C.S. Lewis says about Aslan, who's a character in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, who represents uh, God in some way, right, in this metaphor. He says this about Aslan. Aslan is no tame lion. Our Lord takes seriously the sin that we commit. And if we are scandalizing the gospel and scandalizing his church, in partaking in a wrong way, most assuredly, he takes notice. So what are we to do with this? As we come together to observe the Lord's Supper, we should do this properly in displaying the gospel. We should look to the past, remembering what Christ has done for us. We should look to the future, anticipating the hope of the fullness of kingdom blessings. And our hearts should be filled with gratitude for both of those. But yet we should also be looking at our lives presently. Are we ambassadors for Christ as we're supposed to be? Is our church an embassy of the future kingdom that is to come, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us? Are we reflecting the Savior by our love for one another, by our unity with one another? We must be a particular people, set apart from the world while still living in the world. Our unity cannot, cannot be grounded in nationalism, politics, social economic class, sports teams, or anything else. Rather, our unity is to be founded upon being in Christ, which demands that we order our lives according to his commands. This is not unlike the church at Corinth. In their society, they had divisions and barriers between Greeks and barbarians, between Jews and Gentiles, between Roman citizens and the lesser, between cultured and those who were not. Yet the church of Jesus Christ is to display a different message, a gospel that says this is for all. So as we come to our time of observance, I want you to think inwardly. We're going to give you some time to be able to do that, to ask the question of the Holy Spirit to search our hearts, but also to ask the question, am I sowing disunity in any way, and then repent and believe the gospel? None of us who partake this morning are sinless. We sin, but yet there is one who has taken the punishment for our sin, and we remember him as we observe. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you thankful for the opportunity to be able to study your word. Lord, even as we find here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Lord, Lord, we note that we could come to this time of observing the Lord's Supper and we could do it in such a way that would scandalize the gospel. Lord, we could do it in such a way, Lord, that even as Paul said, Although you're observing it, you're really not observing the Lord's Supper. 
Lord, I pray, Lord, as we have this time of reflection, as we have this time to search ourselves, Lord, that we would ask the Spirit of God to search deep within us, to see if there be any wickedness to be found in us, Lord, or a way in which we're displaying a false gospel to one another, maybe even believing a false gospel, Lord, uh, about ourselves or proclaiming that to a watching world. So, Lord, I ask, Lord, that you would work as you do by your spirit, through your word. These things I pray in your name, amen. Here at Fellowship of Wildwood, we invite anyone who has repented of their sins, turned from their sin, turned from their rebellion, profess trust and trust in Jesus Christ alone to deliver them from the righteous judgment of the Lord. We invite anyone who takes that pledge of allegiance to partake with us. But maybe there is someone here who's not made that allegiance. It's not expected that you partake of this symbol. In fact, you're warned not to. Because just like in Corinth, there are some who may grow ill or even pass away from not observing the supper with its rightful perspective. You would not ask someone who does not represent another country to swear allegiance to that flag. I want to give us a period once again of self-examination before we partake of the bread and then the juice. Ask the instrumentalists to play just a little while. I want you to take this time to search inwardly, but also to ask yourself that question. Am I sowing discord in any way in the body of Christ? Let's pray and think about this together.